This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to Brew Different with new and exciting hop varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. You can't overestimate how keeping yeast healthy, what it does relative not only to fermentation performance and flavor stability, but your, your product quality. The biggest thing you have to do is know what the limitations of each method are and be consistent. If you don't get that, you're kind of working blind. This week on the show, some practical advice from one of my favorite practical yeast guys. Hi, I'm Bill Macca. I'm the owner and consultant for HWM Yeast Solutions, LLC in Grafton, Wisconsin. Master Brewers recently released another focus issue of the Technical Quarterly. This time, the focus is on yeast and fermentation, and the issue is full of great articles. We've released episodes with some of the authors over the last couple of weeks. Next week, I'm excited to interview Jessica Young, whose article describes an innovative method for harvesting yeast from New England IPA. But I'm also excited, as always, to chat with you, Bill, about your article. Not only do you have a great article here, but I understand you also served as the guest editor uh, for this issue. Uh, Yes, I did. And that was uh, quite an honor in itself. Um, Quite a bit more uh, involved than I initially uh, thought it would be. But I I, I started with uh, uh, John uh, Palmer uh, asking myself and uh, and Alistair Pringle to be the guest editors. I believe it was back in December of of uh 20 and uh pretty much uh been uh involved with this for the last six months yeah well it shows uh it's 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 a it's a great issue so um okay your article covers a lot of ground more than we have time to get into today i'm not planning to spend much time on the subject of cell counting and sampling you already gave us an outstanding interview on that subject back on episode 113 but there's so much more to talk about here I guess I want to start with sort of the elephant in the room. Why did this paper need to be written? What's going on out there in the nine-ish thousand breweries in the U.S.? They're all following best practices, producing world-class beers, and it's clear that all brewers have a handle on industry <laughs> standards for cropping, storing, and repitching yeast, right? Um, you you would love to be able to uh, state that unequivocally, but... Um, the the reason this paper actually th- this paper was written uh to reinforce the presentation that was made in Calgary and that presentation was the reason that presentation was made was because the last 8 or 9 years as a consultant both in large and craft breweries um i i noticed a trend uh it wasn't in every brewery but there was a definitely a trend in um Brewers not really either looking at their fermentation data, 
uh, and or not quite understanding what data they were collecting, what it was essentially uh, telling them relative to their fermentation. Talk about the difference between viability and vitality. Yes. Yeah, so, so viability, pretty much, I think everybody uh, is quite familiar with the fact that, you know, if you look at, there's a great uh, cartoon that's been published, uh, I believe by the, it, it's one of the Japanese brewers that shows a yeast cell and it shows gradations of from white through different levels of gray to black. And the black was essentially defined as that cell is dead. And the white was that's alive. And then anything in between was some level, you know, 256 levels of gray, so to speak. And, you know, viability essentially says, okay, the cell has the ability to divide or reproduce. And that's basically the white or the gray in that case. Uh, vitality, on the other hand, is a little more complex. Um, again, it is reflected very nicely. It pictures a thousand words of looking at those different shades of gray. And essentially, it is the yeast's ability, you know, the way I'd like to define it as its ability to perform optimally in a fermentation. Okay. Your TQ article describes in detail all of the various possibilities for assessing yeast viability and vitality, but then goes on to say, hey, the vitality assessments have too much baggage. The best indicator of vitality is actually what? Fermentation performance. And the thing about fermentation performance is that it's pretty difficult to assess if you're not already measuring the right stuff. So let's talk about what exactly needs to be measured. When it comes to monitoring fermentations, what's important and what are the folks who've really mastered quality doing that others might not be? Okay, that's a great question. Uh, one, of the, one of the ways to, to uh, monitor a fermentation and to get the data that you really need to have on hand, and it's a lot of work. I'm not going to uh, say it's not, but it's to get uh, essentially a sample from a fermenter, uh, basically at least every 12 hours. I mean, when I say at least, the reason I say 12 hours is you have a good chance to hit that optimum or max, excuse me, max uh, cell count that you're looking for. And, and so the question is, why, why is that so important? Uh, What's really important in a fermenting uh, fermentation is the net cell growth that you get. And so to understand what net cell growth is, it's essentially that max cell count that you get over the course of the fermentation minus your pitch count, what you pitch that fermentation with. And that's your net cell growth. And it's been shown time and time again that uh, fermentations that have poor net cell growth have issues with VDK assimilation and things like SO2 issues. And so if you're not monitoring um, that fermentation to get that net cell growth, and you're, you're not going to know uh, where you are. So in other words, it, you need to get some kind of a baseline data. Now, you don't have to do this continuously over and over again, but you have to pick the brands that you're doing in your brewery. In other words, what that wort stream is with that yeast strain in that temp at that fermentation temperature, because that makes an impact in the geometry vessel which varies or can vary depending on brewery to brewery. So you need all that data to at least have on hand uh, for future reference so that you will know if you have an aberrant fermentation in the future, if you look at the net cell growth and the other parameters, which you should be measuring would be pH, parent extract, uh, you know, and 
in early croising uh, where you are relative to budding in the first 48 hours. So collecting that data, you know, a good, a good reasonable number to do to have on hand to, so that you have it as a baseline would be like maybe 10% of what you do on a monthly basis for each brand. Let's talk about some of the most important fermentation variables and maybe get into a little high-level cause and effect. Temperature, as you just mentioned, is an obvious critical variable. What happens when you increase it? Uh, when you increase temperature, you, you got a few things going on. You're going to uh, increase your fermentation rate, obviously, right? And you're going to uh, increase your max cell count, unless you have yeast that are not healthy. Uh, it elevates the levels of fusels and esters. It increases that peak value of the VDK, okay? Um, and it reduces the solubility of your oxygen. And that's huge <laughs> because now you can't get your dissolved oxygen uh, to the yeast as optimally as it would have been because it's not solubilized. The problem with increasing temperature is it depends on, you know, 30 to 35 is like the top end for yeast. I'm talking C here. Right. And lagers and ales have different variations, variability on their ranges, right? So 6 to 15 C is like a lager, uh, you know, and, and ale is going to be higher. It's generally, you know, you can go high as high as without any issues, usually 25 C with no problem. But the problem becomes if you go too high, you're going to start stripping volatiles and ethanol. And so you can have a flavor impact from increasing the temperature beyond the, what's considered optimum for that yeast strain. Even though yeast in general can high uh, handle that 30 to 35 C, um, that, that doesn't mean that's good for their uh, fermentation flavor profile. You also mentioned in the article that while that overall ester concentration might increase, it might not be the, the um, ratio of esters that you, you really want. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the ester profile, you can increase that ester total ester production. But what may happen is because the esterases vary, and there's a number of different esterases um, as far as their temperature uh, optimum, you're going to land up producing more of the unfavorable flavor esters over the more favorable ones. So in other words, uh, instead of an ethyl uh, or isoamyl acetate ester um, level that you may want, you may be producing more of an ethyl octanate, which is the, you know, more of the fatty acid esters. Okay. Do you see a lot of mistakes related to temperature or do we mostly have, have a handle on monitoring and managing that variable? Um, I think the only thing I have seen, I think in general, to, the first answer to that question is in general, I think people pretty much have temperature under control. I think what I do see uh, a little of in the industry are people trying to take, say, a uh, yeast strain, such as a lager, at a certain temperature, or it could even be an ale, but I've seen this generally with a lager, and go to a higher temperature, which is fine generally if you stay in that two to four C difference range, but they may want to go 10 degrees C higher. And then now you're starting to have stress, thermal stress on that yeast. And then in some other cases, I've actually seen them try to go that way and then go back to a uh, lower temperature. And that, that creates a lot of stress on a yeast cell going in uh, directions that are 10 degrees, you know, C potentially in either direction. Okay. How about Wart DO? What's going on there? Yeah, Wart DO is, uh, is one of my favorite subjects to talk about because uh, in my former life in a large brewery, 
anytime there was a fermentation issue, uh, our brewers would automatically crank up the oxygen. <laughs> and and that happened to be, it, and you know, it was uh, instead of looking at cause and effect, which, you know, it, it, there's not a lot of postmortem done in a brewery, to my knowledge. So, <laughs> uh, you know, instead of doing cause and effect or calling in some experts that might be able to do cause and effect for you, uh, you know, it worked, right? So the fermentation went fine. And, you know, to their, you know, obviously for a brewer, the, their main job is not to uh, do a postmortem on, what's going on with the yeast, but to get beer out the door. So, you know, they got their fermentation through, it worked, and the flavor was, uh, you know, relatively okay, and everything was hunky-dory, and, you know, went on to the next one. But the problem is, uh, you know, if you give, there, there is a point of inflection, and you can lose fermentation efficiencies at which, uh, and it varies strain to strain, at which the concentration of uh, oxygen that you're giving and that fermentation rate, uh, you know, don't coincide. They 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 become uh, non-corollary, if you want to say that. that, that. So, um, and and what you're doing is potentially, if you're giving the, the yeast too much oxygen, if you think about it, one of the things we've been fighting in the industry for the last twenty years is you know be able to keep our products fresh on the shelf well you really um you really do yourself a disservice relative to flavor stability because you know like five to fifteen percent it's been estimated of the oxygen you're providing uh is actually used what you need for the the membrane is actually used in sterile production, and I believe the other fifteen percent might be used in uh, unsaturated fatty acids. So the rest is speculated to be utilized in biological reactions, which you know I won't I won't bore the audience with at this point. But heme biosynthesis, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's a small percentage of that that also goes off into headspace and becomes essentially. Uh, a uh, negative impact on flavor stability. Okay. Talk about the effects of pressure in its various forms. Pressure is very, it's a, uh, is a very complex piece. Um, usually you're dealing with um, three components and they all could be uh, making an impact simultaneously uh there's hydrostatic pressure which you know is in proportion to the depth measured from the surface all right so um the taller your fermenter if you're using you know cylindrical conical vessels the more impact you're going to have from uh hydrostatic pressure um and and it also would the other piece to that is the geometry of a ccv the aspect ratio. So, you know, if you've got a one-to-one or a two-to-one uh, aspect ratio, you're, you're not as apt to have as many issues uh, on hydros- from hydrostatic pressure, which the biggest issue is uh, pushing dissolved CO2 down into the cone of the yeast and stressing your yeast. Um, because they get stressed from dissolved CO2. But when, if you start having missile silo configurations, you know, six to one or something along those lines, you're, you're, that's a major hydrostatic pressure impact on your right. yeast. Yeah. Um, now, osmotic pressure is the, is the second pressure, and that's really related to the you know, original gravity of the, that you've used in your wart. So, you know, that's, that's a, that's a given you're going to have that. Um, but that is a pressure that has to be dealt with, um, relative. And there's not much you can do with that, except, you know, it, it comes more into play on yeast generations. If you're keeping your yeast, you really, you know, if you've been using something that's greater than 17 degrees Plato, you really don't want to keep many generations i mean a rule of thumb on that is for ale and and lagers is like eight or less and again it's strain driven um and the third pressure is top pressure 
And it's, you know, it's the pressure that you actually can put on a vessel. You really shouldn't have more than about a half a pound of, uh, or a half a, uh, bar, um, pressure on a, on a fermentation vessel. Um, but you know, it not only affects yeast growth, um, but it affects the volatile profile. And I, I think I said in there in the, in the paper, um, and it happened at Miller, uh, Jim Rice and a group put together two 100 liter fermentations, uh, in the pilot lab side by side. One was 22 degrees C. One was 15 C. On the 22 degrees C, they used 22.7 PSIGs pressure. In the 15 C, there was no pressure. And, you know, what happened was essentially, um, there was no difference in the, in the, in the extent of yeast growth or flavor profile. And that's because, you know, when you're increasing the temperature, but you're increasing the pressure, you're essentially um, increasing the concentration of dissolved CO2, which, you know, retards yeast growth, and it decreases esters and fusels. Uh, fusels less than esters. And the other, at the same time, you've got CO2 toxicity. Um, it not only shuts down uh, yeast growth, it also affects yeast metabolism. So that's, you know, three pressures there that can affect the outcome of not only your yeast health, but your flavor profile. Any common mistakes that you're seeing out there related to pressure? Um, I have seen where people are storing yeast, like in a yeast storage vessel, a brink, what have you, and they're, they, they're, they're using pressure on that storage vessel. And there's no need to do that. Um, some of the large brewers in the world do not, they, they keep their yeast, you know, once they've moved them into a storage vessel, and They've agitated or pump looped it or, or gone through a, uh, you know, a, some kind of a uh, top hat uh, cascading piece to try to, to uh, remove the dissolved CO2. Once they have that, they essentially keep the yeast under the CO2 blanket that's left um, as a protection for microbial. I mean, uh, a storage vessel and a yeast propagator are two different animals. So you would keep a propagator under pressure minimum, half bar or what have you, uh, no more than one, uh, to minimize any infiltration of air and organisms into that vessel because you're looking at pure culture in theory right right but a, but a yeast storage vessel those yeast are in stationary phase they've come out of that fermenter been cropped at a stationary phase they're a lot more robust than propagating yeast in log phase and you don't want to impose dissolved co2 back into that yeast slurry that you've essentially decarbonated. Coming up. If it's down, get it out. It, once it's flocculated out, it's doing you no good. So you need to get it out of, out of the fermenter. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, 
Try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This episode is also sponsored by More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. HS Sativa, brought to you by BSG Hop Solutions. Meet the latest in the BSG Hop Solutions portfolio, HS Sativa. Strong expressions of stone fruit, floral, and resinous pine flavors and aromas define this blend. Crafted specifically for use in hazy IPAs and other hop-forward beers. HS Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs. Or for any other hoppy styles where a combination of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine aromatics are desired. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more, or call 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Muntins. Offering a wide range of malted ingredients sourced within a 50-mile radius of their maltings. Listen to Nigel Davis discuss sustainability at Muntins on episode 206. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. District Midwest meets at the Yellow Springs Brewery Barrel Room September 18th. District Georgia meets at Southern Brewing in Athens September 24th. The District Ontario 2021 Iron Brewer Competition is September 24th. I'm so glad to see the great District Northwest meeting once again at Hood River October 15th and 16th. There's one big meeting that's on my calendar. I hope it's on yours. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Registration is open now. And don't forget the world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins October 31st. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, United We Brew. Now back to the show. Okay, all these variables are important, but we save the best for last. Talk about pitch rate. Yeah, pitch rate is interesting too in itself. Um, you know, what you see is, you know, if you increase your pitch rate, you have to think of it in terms of what's going on with the growth. So you're essentially decreasing cell division with increased pitch rate. So that means you're decreasing nitrogen demand. Uh, the ester formations that uh, are impacted, the potential is to see increase in solvent esters over fruity esters. In other words, ethyl acetate over isoamyl. As you increase the pitch rate, you usually get higher fusels, increase, or excuse me, decrease in higher fusels and a decrease in sulfur compounds. Um, you get a decrease in total aroma intensities, total hoppy aroma, total. Uh, and, and your analytical uh, IBUs bear that out as far as the flavor and aromas. And the reason is speculated is as you're increasing the pitch rate, and let's just use, um, let's demarcate this as, okay, 1x is your normal rate, uh, 2x, 3x, and half x. okay? So if you go out and you're there at 2 to 3x, when you start hitting 3x uh, or even 2x, you're increasing the vigorousness of that fermentation, right? The, the convection currents, uh, everything is, 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 is rolling and boiling, so to speak. And you're creating a lot of foam at the top of that fermenter. I mean, you can cause over foaming if you're not careful. And in the process of creating that foam, you're stripping the flavor volatiles. 
especially relative to aroma uh, hops. Um, so your analytical uh, data that's been shown on some of these over pitches uh, matches up with the uh, total aroma intensities and hoppy aromas uh, decreasing. Which is not what we want, obviously. No. Uh, why, why do some brewers intentionally under pitch just a little? Why doesn't increasing pitch rate increase net cell growth? And do you think that, as with Wurt Do, there's also a lot of overdoing it occurring in regards to pitch rate? Okay, so uh, let me let me see if I can uh, peel the onion on that one. Uh, if you, you know, if you're the reason brewers. In theory, you do you, the the rule of thumb, right? Is one million degrees, or one million degrees, one million cells per ml per degree Plato, right? For a pitch rate. Now, it's better to try to slightly under slightly under pitch. In other words, ten to fifteen percent. So, if you had a fifteen seven degree Plato wart or sixteen, you might want to pitch fourteen million cells per ml. And the reason for that is you're going to land up growing healthier, newer, younger cells. And that will come into play to help you as you repitch yeast down the line. So you really want to slightly under pitch. Now, you know, there, go back to that half X relative to the normal pitch rate. That's where you want to be if you're trying to um, make a signature hefty vice. Because at one half X pitch rate of your normal pitch, you're going to bring out more of the isoamyl acetate, which is a predominant flavor note in a hefty vice. Um, let me get back. What was the was the other part of the question? Why doesn't increasing your pitch rate increase the net cell growth? Yeah, yeah. so if you look at it, um, as you increase your pitch rate, you've got less growth, right? Less cell division, less nitrogen demand. Um, your cells, essentially, if you look at the net cell growth, which is your max minus your pitch, it comes out to essentially very little change over the course of the increase in the pitch. Is that, is that, uh, is that a function of the yeast cells just knowing that the population is is the, hey, there's not enough food for all of us, or what? What is the real? Yeah, it's 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 the it's the you know number of molecules of gas in a room, and space and surface area. So yeah, it's the l nutrient limitation. Okay. Yeah. All right, and the the last part was, um, do you do you think that as with Wurt Do, there's um, a lot of people sort of overdoing it when it comes to pitch rate. And in other words, you know, uh, crank up the O2, crank up the pitch rate solves our problems. Well, let's, uh, let's back up a moment. I'm not so sure that I, that, that people in general <laughs> know what their pitch rate is. Fair enough. Uh, to, you know, it, it, so if you don't know your pitch rate, uh, it's not going to do you a whole lot of good to do a fermentation monitoring to figure out your max cell count so you know what your net cell growth is, right? Right. And so what I have seen is, you know, unless you're getting a fermenter full cell count, you generally, you know, depending on the size of the vessel, that's generally done anywhere from, you know, zero to 12 hours after pitch, right? Uh, if you don't get that, you're, you're kind of working blind. Um, so one thing that I, I am s suggesting or, or recommending is that people start at least initially determining their, what their pitch rates are. I mean, you don't have to do it ad infinitum, but at some point you need to know, okay, if I have this slurry with these solids, say, or this cell count, and I'm going into this volume, I can at least do a theoretical fermenter full cell count. 
I mean, that's pretty easy to do. And I mean, just get some confirmations of a few actual counts. The problem with getting a fermenter full cell count that's accurate, it's very easy to do in a horizontal. But in a cylindrical conical, it becomes problematic with convection currents uh, and the placement of sampling ports. Does that make sense? It does. How how much of uh, impact is sort of the pitching method there? I mean, if you're if you haven't dosed the yeast in line, you know, as the f- fermenter's filling and gotten it perfectly homogenous, is that much of a factor, or is the yeast going to pretty much um, distribute throughout the 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 beer? You know, no, uh, no. You bring up you bring up a great point. I saw this. Um, we did a lot of Aber work uh, in the former life of mine and the uh one depends on your yeast strain and you're going back to our discussion on our earlier podcast on sampling and homogeneity homogeneity excuse me what happens is if you're not uh agitating the yeast slurry that you're about to pitch and say it's 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 very flocculent, right? Uh, you're going to have a disproportion of yeast at various times during the pitch. So it's ultra important to have the yeast as mixed as possible um, during a pitch. Okay. Um- I don't have anything else. Do you have anything else you want to say about pitch rate before we move on? No, I'm, I think I'm I, okay. Good. I mean, uh, you know, one thing I would, would like to emphasize though. And, and I mean, this, I brought this out, I believe in the paper was, uh, pitching with high dead cells is a bad practice. And, um, not only do you have the, uh, possibility of poor fermentation performance, you have the formation of irreversible hazes, off flavors, and uh, poor foam stability. And essentially, um, when you pitch with high dead cells, you can consider it as under pitching. Your article also gives a great overview of the four different pitching methods brewers employ. You even worked in the 1969 Master Brewers TQ publication that redefined the standard for the concentrated wet solids method. And you managed to explain why, why brewers pitching active dry yeast shouldn't use packs that have lost their vacuum seal. We don't have much time to spend on the topic of pitching methods, and I'll encourage listeners to read the article instead. But is there any one thing you'd like to mention about that topic? Uh, on the pitching methods themselves, I think you, I mean, I think you just have to, I've seen people pitch numerous ways, all the way from um, using pails at a brewery we owned at one time in Tumwater, Washington, uh, to, you know, sophisticated inline Aber meters. And I think the biggest thing you have to do is know what the limitations of each method are and be consistent. And if you're going to vary methods within the brewery, which some breweries do, know what those variabilities are between the two methods. That's good advice. Okay, for brewers who have the monitoring part down, what factors should they consider when it comes to assessing yeast for reuse? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I listed, I think, uh, a page or two of questions that they should be asking themselves. But, at, you know, at the end of the day, um, you have to set up standard operating procedures. And those questions that I, I put out there were things to, to, to essentially gather uh, facets of to employ as basic core values relative to reusing yeast. I mean, you don't want to, you know, pitch with yeast that have come from a fermentation with high dead cells. 
you don't want to reuse yeasts that are um, giving you stress indicators, either from aroma or microscopic evaluation. You don't want to use yeast that, you know, your fermenter was never made it to the end of your target AE at the time that you thought it should. I mean, the biggest thing is I think people think that yeast that they've used and they haven't come out of an optimum fermentation and they know they're not optimum from a vitality health standpoint, they think they can be uh, resuscitated, so to speak. And, and they basically can't. I mean, once the yeast starts down its path of be, being stressed, there's very little that you can do to bring it back to any form of usability for your fermentation from an optimal standpoint. There's something that perplexes me, and I really thought by now we would have mastered this as an industry. I still fairly regularly hear about brewers who aren't regularly dumping yeast from their cones after fermentation. Uh. Yeast is bad for fermented beer, and a huge column of fermented beer is bad for the yeast it's sitting on top of. You want to get that slurry out of the tank and either repitch it right away or put it down the drain. How do so many brewers get away with keeping yeast in the cone for days or even weeks after fermentation? I mean, after fermentation, I panic. Anytime I have to let a tank go more than 48 hours without a drop. Am I crazy? No, um, that you bring up a several good points. Uh, one is as soon as the yeast is, is down, you know, there's a basic axiom that says essentially, if it's down, get it out. And the reason is that cone is a hostile environment, right? You've got high ethanol down there. Um, you've got metabolic heat being generated because the yeast are trying to maintain themselves. They're trying to stay alive. So they're metabolizing just to try to keep alive. And you've got hydrostatic pressure, as we discussed earlier, on top of that. You're pushing dissolved CO2. There's nothing good about yeast in the cone, and it's not going to do you any good to keep them there. They're not there to, you know, some people, I don't know, they, are, they have this... Uh, um, miscommunication that yeast or that any yeast in a fermenter is going to help you reassimilate diacetyl. Well, that's not true. If the yeast is not up, uh, you know, and in, in, uh, hasn't flocculated out, it, once it's flocculated out, it's doing you no good. So you need to get it out of, out of the fermenter. The other piece that you brought up that kind of jarred my memory is a, a, a bad practice, and a lot of brewers do this, is cone to cone repitching, and the problem is uh, one: if you've actually removed the dead cells and trube, as you as you alluded to, um, that's fine. That's a little bit of a help to you if you go to cream. But on the other hand, you have no idea of the health of that yeast in that cone because you haven't had time to make any assessment. So you don't know, you know, what the viability is. Um, you have you have not decarbonated it for the most part, right? You're so you're sending it from one fermenting vessel with potentially dissolved CO2 issues to another fermentation vessel. Uh, on top of that, you have no idea. You know, you certainly haven't done a micro assessment, right? Because you've already pitched it. So there, it's, there's nothing good about cone to cone pitching. And even if you even if you do manage to get a sample out of that process to evaluate it, whether it's you know before before you do something with it or or, or after the fact, uh, you've got no guarantee that that's a homogenous sample. I mean, it was just one point at one place in that cone. Exactly. And um, the other piece that I'm not going to go into since it's not the because it's not the uh, focus of this uh, podcast is uh, going back to my micro hat, uh, microbiology hat is. Uh, Hoses in general are nightmares, and unless you have known, uh, you know, unless you're hard piped, if you are using a hose, there is a lot of potential issues there from a micro standpoint. So, um, you know, unless you have known uh, hygiene and sanitation standards that are high for hoses, and you've 
dedicated hoses because you know you're say you've got several different yeast strains going on in your brewery um things become problematic relative to contamination of the other fermenter Talk about oxygen exposure for stored yeast. What's the problem there? Yeah, that's that's another good question. Uh, the problem there is if you're, uh, say in the case of a yeast storage vessel, and you're agitating it as the yeast are coming from a fermenter to that vessel from the bottom of the yeast storage vessel, brink, whatever you want to call it. You're agitating because you're trying to decarbonate and keep the mitts homogeneous, right? And then you get it to the level uh, in the brink or storage vessel where you want to stop. And then you really want to stop your agitation. And the only reason you should agitate further is to make sure that you have uniform cooling um, of that brink during its storage. And so, you know, it should only be set uh, up to agitate like five minutes every hour for. Uh, temperature uniformity. If you're doing more than that, you're you're potentially bringing oxygen into the vessel. And what oxygen will do, it triggers glycogen depletion. And glycogen is the storage polysaccharide that you have to have at a relatively high level. And you usually do after yeast goes through Croisoning and it comes back into stationary phase. It usually re- you know rebuilds its glycogen supplies, and glycogen provides the energy that the yeast is going to need to make sterols and unsaturated fatty acids for the yeast membrane. So when you pitch it, you know you're going to have an optimum yeast health for reassimilate or for assimilation of nutrients, growth, and that fermentation. Um, flavor profile and if that if you're at a some low level if you have depleted your glycogen stores and it's somewhat strain dependent again on that level varying from strain to strain and what you need if you've depleted that you could land up with a hun fermentation and that's been shown uh time and time again okay anything else you want to add um you know i think at the end of the day, I mean, you know, what I would summarize with, if that's the best way to describe it, is vitality testing. You know, and there's some good methods out there. The problem is they're either too complex, too expensive, or they're, they're, the, the time that it takes to do it is it's, it's not efficient for a day-to-day brewery operation. And the data you're getting is retrospective. So, you know, even though you can run, which I do recommend people do test yeast for fermentation performance with Imhoff cones or, or, or EBC tubes or even the mini tube fermentation tubes. But that information probably should be gathered prior to you utilizing the yeast. And once you've used the yeast, um, I think what's more important, and I've seen this time and time again, is people are trying to rely on a vitality test to tell them where they are, but they're not focusing in on, as I said earlier, um, getting SOPs or standard operating procedures established uh, for best practices in, in all the yeast relevant pieces in a brewery. So, in other words, propagation cropping collection storage and pitching and it has to be those considerations have to be obviously relative to specific strains you're using in-house um you can't uh overestimate uh how keeping yeast healthy uh in a brewery what it does relative not only to fermentation performance and flavor stability, but your your product quality um, and your consistency. And if nothing else, I mean, you want consistent products because consumers 
generally they don't like random <laughs> and i bring this up schlitz largest brewer in milwaukee at one time largest brewer in the world i believe at one time they had a good product and they changed some pieces to the fermentation that changed the flavor profile and it's not wasn't necessarily bad in the sense it was a bad flavor profile but it wasn't what the consumer expected when they bought a Schlitz product. And Schlitz right now is a Blue Cross Blue Shield condominium complex. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I can't emphasize enough that you're trying to look for consistency because it's, it's a good business decision to produce consistent products. <laughs> That was Bill Macca here on the Master Brewers podcast. I highly recommend reading Bill's recent article in the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly. You can, of course, find a direct link to that, as well as to the presentation he gave in Calgary in the show notes. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries, and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career, and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Master Brewers.